This morning we're going to uh, continue throughout the book of Matthew, continue into the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to read this quote to begin us this morning. Um, I'm not going to put it up behind us. So really what I want you to do is maybe even just close your eyes, do what you need to do to, to really be able to focus in on these words. These come from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is what he says. The life of discipleship can only be maintained so long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves. Neither the law, nor personal piety, nor even the world. The disciple always looks only to his master, never to Christ and the law, Christ and religion, Christ and the world. I think that's a a really powerful, powerful quote. Keep that in the back of your mind this morning as we walk through the scripture, and uh, we'll come back to this towards the end of our time. So if you want to uh, read with me, we're going to jump into Matthew six nineteen through 24. This is what the scripture says this morning. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We're going to focus a little bit in on this stuff this morning. Let me throw out this question. I'm actually looking for responses from people here. Um, what is this about? Like if you were just to say, hey, this is about this one thing or this theme. Um, when I read this, what does this, what does this bring to mind? What is this scripture speaking to? What is it about? Let's throw out some ideas. Being God-centered. Good. What else? Selflessness. Okay, good. Focus, nice. Faithfulness, okay. Maybe wealth might be one of them. It seems to talk a little bit about money in there. I think all these things are right. I think, they're, I think it's speaking to all these things. Uh, and, and I bring up wealth because I knew that I was preaching on this. Um, and, and I knew, I did not know it was going to be Parents Weekend. <laughs> it's easy to preach about wealth when you have a lot of college students and not a lot of parents in the building. Um, so... Um, but, you know, I knew I was going to be preaching on this for the last couple months, and I had really desired to look at it from an angle that didn't really have to talk about money. But the reality is, as a scripture, this is about money. It's about wealth at some level. It's about all these other things as well. But Jesus does seem to be speaking about wealth, the fact that we can't serve two masters, God and wealth. And so this morning, we're going to have to get into it a little bit this morning. Um, but I, I think really the whole scripture can boil down to two things, two main themes that run throughout. One person identified it this morning. I think the two themes are this. The first is the danger of wealth, and the second is an admonishment for our division of focus. And those seem to be these two themes that run throughout the scripture this morning. So we're going to get into those. Before we uh, unpack that stuff, I want to just actually look at the scripture and let's walk through it real quick together um, so we kind of have a a level playing field of of what Jesus really is getting at and and maybe some contextual stuff in here. So uh, let me pray and then we'll we'll jump in. God, be with us this morning. Lord, we pray, um, especially in scriptures that may challenge and test and push us that uh, you would allow us to be open to your word, allow us to be moved, 
allow us to, um, to be willing and humble enough to have some self-reflection, to look deep within and, and ask tough questions this morning. We trust that your scripture uh, will pierce us, and, and we ask for that this morning. So be with us, open our minds and our eyes to see you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So let's, uh, let's first look at this idea of treasures, verses 19 through 21. And literally, if you were just to, uh, to take this, this section, literally it would say this, do not treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth. So it's kind of this play on words. But let me throw out another question here. What, what is a treasure on earth? When it says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, what, what could some of those things be? And let's, let's have some uh, participation here. What could be treasures on earth? Cars, good. Family. Family could be one. Interesting, yeah. 401k plans, 401k plans. yeah. Retirement stuff, sure. Houses. Houses. Relationships, good. I think treasures on earth is this. Anything which hinders us from loving God above all things and recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord. I think when we talk about treasures on earth, that's what it is. It's anything that hinders it. So it could be relationships, it could be cars, it could be wealth, it could be any of those things. It's anything that acts as a barrier between ourselves and our obedience to Jesus Christ. You see, treasure is where our trust, our security, and our loyalty lies. And either those things lie in Jesus, either we trust in Jesus, we're secure in Jesus, our loyalty is in Jesus, or those things are in our 401k plans. And so he talks about that saying, hey, you either have treasures here on earth or you have treasures in heaven. What we forget oftentimes, I think, is that things on earth, all things on earth, are temporal. Our 401k plan, our cars, our homes are all temporal things. Decay is a natural occurrence, and it will happen to all things. It's actually the second law of thermodynamics. Now, I am not a scientist. I'm not going to try to get into it, but it's this idea of entropy, that everything tends towards decay and chaos. It's actually a natural law. The scripture gets at this and it says either must or, or, or either moth or rust will destroy these things or a thief will come in and take them. See, the, the idea of moths, it correlates to nature, that nature will ruin something. The idea of rust is time, that time will just naturally decay stuff. Thieves, that man will come in and break something. So Jesus is identifying, saying, hey, anything that you consider a treasure here on earth, it's going to decay. Somebody's going to come in and take it. There's nothing you can do to protect your assets, to fully protect your assets, because everything on earth is temporal. There is no full, fully secure way to keep our stuff. That's interesting. Not only, not only is it interesting, but I think it's, uh, it, it does pierce when you really begin to think about that. There's no deadbolts that are strong enough to keep our homes protected. There's no bank secure enough. Actually, we just, uh, I probably know of three or four people in the last month that have had their car stolen. <laughs> Thank you. That's awesome. I mean, and they're, and they're all in this community right here. I mean, there's just really nothing we can do. Russ, even last week, put up a picture of his home and, uh, and then read all of the accounts of different types of violence or theft or whatever that happened within his neighborhood or just over the course of 12 hours. There's just nothing we can do. Things on earth 
are temporal. And so if our security or our value is found in these things, then I'm, I'm pretty confident we're going to spend our entire lives being disappointed because there's nothing we can do to keep that stuff. The scripture is clear that our treasure will dictate the placement of our hearts. Where our treasure is, our hearts will be there also. So what we treasure becomes the focus of our lives. And that focus can either be Jesus, that focus can be our wealth, that focus can be an earthly treasure. Let's jump in to verses 22 through 23. And I know I'm going through this stuff quick, uh, so just hang on there with me. So uh, verses 22 to 23, it's talking about the two different eyes. The scripture says this, The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if, it is, if the eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, does this scripture seem to fit in this? You kind of go from talking about two treasures to two lords, and you have this idea of two eyes in the middle. When I first read this, it, I, my first thought was kind of like, how does this really fit? What are, what are we really talking about this, uh, with this passage? Jewish tradition says this, that the eye was the window unto the soul. And so, for a long time, there have been many different interpretations of just these two verses. I want to roll through just a couple of them here. The first is that it's not really related to money or wealth at any level, but it's actually related to visual temptation. So, you would, you would look at it this way, that pornography and lust would be a great example of this. That what goes into our eyes actually affects our souls. That it can actually change our very character. And so, if your life is spent visually filling our minds with garbage, our character will be changed. The very person who we are will be affected. It will cause us harm. Other people have interpreted this with more of a sense of a literal eye, that it would actually be possible or that it is possible to detect through the eyes of another person whether they are a person of character. This is why our moms, when we were younger, would say, look me in the eye. This idea that you can actually look somebody in the eye and tell what their character is. Tell if they're lying, if they're honest, if they're truthful. Therefore, one's life and character can be seen through the gaze of their eyes. So some people have read this passage that way. Calvin relates it more to the goals of our life. And he actually transposed the word eye with goal and the word body with life. And so the section would read this way. The goal is the lamp of the life. So then, if your goal is clear, your whole life will be full of light. But if your goal is bad, your whole life will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? So he actually took this idea and said, no, the goal is the lamp unto the life. So what you're aimed at, the way that your life is positioned, the things that you're chasing after, actually becomes the very character that you are. It becomes the person who you are. Calvin believed that our goals and pursuits are what ultimately shaped our lives. Now, I actually think all of these interpretations are, are probably right at some level. I don't think anybody has the corner exactly how to interpret the scripture. That's one of the beauties of it, is people can read it and it, and it brings to light different things. So I think all of these things are good. One, uh, the one that I really liked, though, and the one that seemed to speak the most to the scripture is this. And I, and I think it speaks most to it because it kind of stays in the same context as this. That either you have a sound or an unsound eye. Think about it in this way. 
how we understand and see our treasure will direct how we spend and invest our treasure, which then shapes our loyalties and our heart, which ultimately changes the way we move and act in the world around us. And so the soundness of our eye is directly correlated to how we view our treasures. Now, I know that was a lot of words right there. Let me, let me take it this way. Let me give you an example. Say this. Say that our treasure is our wealth. So then we spend or save our treasure in the ways that best serve us, which then shape us to be greedy or materialistic or maybe even fearful that we're going to lose our money, which then changes the very way in which we approach poverty. It changes the way in which we give money. So let's, let's look at this one. Maybe treasure is our time. Maybe you really treasure the time that you have, and so you spend your time doing things that you like and that bring you joy, which then leads us to begin to hoard our time for ourselves. We become greedy with our time which then limits our ability to meet needs of the people around us and to, and to accept the interruptions that come into our life. Because you treasure time so much that it actually ultimately changes who you are. Think about it this way, and maybe this will hit home a little bit more. Maybe you treasure your kids. We spend all of our time filling their needs and rep- responding to their desires. Our identity slowly begins to be wrapped into the success or happiness of your kids. It changes the way in which you parent. It changes the way or the things in which you trust, the things in which you find security in. Now, I'm a parent of three little boys, and that hits home when I read that because I do treasure my kids. I love them more than anything. But I think the scripture is pretty clear that we need to treasure Jesus above all, and sometimes wealth, sometimes time, sometimes our kids can get in the way of that. Whatever that is for you, put put it in in that formula right there. Maybe it's your wife, maybe it's your job, maybe it's finding success. Whatever that thing is, Jesus is saying, hey, the way that we perceive matters. You can either have a sound or an unsound eye. I think the bottom line of just these two verses is this, that perception does matter. And not the way that people perceive us, but the ways in which we perceive our treasure. So you've got to ask yourself, what kind of eye do I have? Do I have a sound eye or do I have an unsound eye? Because the things that you perceive to be your treasures and in the very ways that you actually perceive those treasures will affect your ability to be A disciple. The eye is the window unto the soul. The Jewish person would believe that. So what your eye tends to land on, the treasures that your gaze is fixed upon, will ultimately shape our souls. That's what they would believe. That final verse here is about two lords, and it says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Contextually speaking, this was about the ownership of slaves. And so if a slave owner had two sons and he passed, you had to figure out, well, what do we do with the property that we own or the slaves that that father owned? 
Do you divide them between the sons, or how does that work? Or how does that work? And so this gets at the idea that a slave could not be divided between two sons. He could not have two masters. It was just an impossibility. Because either he would hate the one and love the other. There was no way to get around it. And so Jesus is is really speaking into the context, into a real-life situation in this time, saying, listen, you cannot have two masters. You see, the reality is, is that we will serve something. Every single one of us will serve something or someone in our life. But you cannot serve two things. You cannot have two lords. A famous theologian said this, You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir. But you're going to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. It's the famous Bob Dylan song. We are going to serve somebody. It's just a reality of our lives. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 12.30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Later on in Mark 9.40-42, he says it this way, For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name, as, a, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he'd been cast into the sea. It's pretty strong language. I think we oftentimes read scriptures like this, whether it's a scripture about hating God and loving the other, or tying a millstone around our neck and talk about Jesus' use of hyperbole in his speech. There's no way he really meant this. But do you think sometimes we just use that as an argument so that we can continue to live our lives in the ways that we want to? That we can read scripture sometimes and say, well, I can't take this literally because Jesus, there's no way he could have made that. But really, underneath all that is just our inability or our unwillingness to really change our lives. Yes, now I do believe that Jesus uses that kind of speech to get his message across. But I also think that he was much more serious about this issue than sometimes we are. I don't think we need to read all the scriptures literally. I think there's use of metaphor and hyperbole. But I do think that Jesus takes this seriously, and I think that our call is to take this incredibly seriously. That you cannot have two lords. You cannot serve God and money. I found this quote, says this by two gentlemen who edit this book, Stassen and Gushy. They say, Our own biases in perceiving and misperceiving our social situations are caused by our misplaced loyalties to other lords in our lives besides God. You see, we can't serve God during the day, but then moonlight for our own gain at night. You cannot have two masters. And so either we're for one and against the other. Because there is nothing in between. We as a Christian people in the American church, we have a Lord problem. We sometimes forget who our Lord is. We spend our lives trying to serve too many Lords 
Jesus just being one of those tacked onto the end of a laundry list of other things we're trying to serve. But we need to remember that it is impossible to serve two lords, and the scripture says that. So, what's the point of all this? I said that there are two themes in the beginning that I see. I think those two themes are this. Wealth is dangerous, and we are called to a singular focus on Jesus Christ. So wealth being dangerous, let's tackle this real quick. In the mid to late 90s, a group of guys got together to address this situation, and they came up with this statement, Mo money, mo problems. <laughs> that was the notorious B.I.G., Sean Puffy Combs, and Mace sang that song. If you're in college, you, maybe you might have been in like middle school or elementary school if that came out. That song was hot. <laughs> but here's the deal. We've been conditioned to think that money solves our problems. Now, we all, if we got in conversations here, none of us would actually say that. But underneath it all, we've been conditioned to think that money solves our problems. How many of us right now have a, a number in mind that if we were able to make X amount of dollars more a year, then things would maybe level out and we wouldn't feel like we're always trying to catch up? Who, just raise your hand. Let's full transparency. Have a number in mind saying, if I could make... $2,000 more dollars a year, if I could make $10,000 more dollars a year, then I could pay off my house quicker, and, I, and I could get the, we could get a new car, and we'd get the air conditioning, and we'd get dogs, and all this stuff. We have this idea that, that money fixes things. But in fact, I think when you get that $2,000 more dollars a year, when you get that $10,000 more dollars a year, that number doesn't really change you still keep that number in mind. You grow in to your salary. And so maybe you do get a raise, but soon thereafter you think, oh man, if I could have just got a 12% raise, that would have really changed everything. And so that number just continues to increase as our salaries increase. We've been conditioned to think that money does solve problems. There's a reason that most lottery winners say, I wish I would have never won. I wish I would have never won the $2 million or the $160 million. It has ruined my life. There's a reason that extreme home makeover makes me uneasy. Now, I know I'm treading on thin water or thin water, thin ice here. It's not even a, that's not even a, a deal. Uh, here's the deal. A new home is not going to solve the problems in these people's lives. Now, I love meeting needs of people, and certainly there are situations where you're living in a situation that's un unhealthy and not safe, and you need to get a new home. So I'm not saying that that's, that's not it, but, and, I, and I love altruism. I love all the things. I even love the fact that sometimes they would come in, they would build this home in a community, and then that family goes and does stuff, and it kind of presents this pay-it-forward kind of deal. That's all beautiful stuff. I don't think it's so much an issue for the family as much as it's an issue for us watching at home. Because we watch and subconsciously think, oh, a new home changes everything. A new home changes it, and then they tack on the truck, and that's going to change it. And then Reba McIntyre does the concert in the backyard, and we just think, if that could happen to me, my life would change. But here's the deal. Money doesn't fix problems. And sometimes we are conditioned to think that. Even though we may never say it out loud, we begin and we continue to operate out of that model. I think there's a reason that we as Christians have a serious contentment issue 
when it comes to wealth. I think we're lost, and we don't really know what to do. We don't really know how to handle it. Because amassing more money and accruing more things will never solve our problems. It will never suffice for the life that Christ has to offer and the life that Christ calls us into. I'm going to read a quote right now. And I'm going to actually put up my email behind you. And here's why I'm doing that. This is my disclaimer. Because I'm going to read a quote that I think is really powerful. Some people may not like it. You can send me an email. And here's why I say that. We are a community. We are a family. And if you have issues, we want to hear those things. We don't want you to leave this building and say, oh, I'm never coming back there. That guy said this and this, and he read that quote, and it's just too much. No, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about it. I'm in process just as, as much as everybody else is in process. And so if there are issues, send me an email. Let's talk about it. Let's grab coffee. I'd love to talk about it. But here's this quote. To be rich and to be a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem. Christians have often tried to deal with this problem by suggesting that it is not what we possess that is the problem, but our attitude towards what we possess that is the problem. Some recommend, for example, that we learn to possess what we possess as if it's not really ours. This means we must always be ready to give out of our abundance and even be ready to lose it all if we have it. Christians, particularly in a capitalistic social orders, are told that it is not wealth or power that is the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is very clear. Wealth is a problem. That capitalism is an economic system justified by the production of wealth is therefore not necessarily good news for Christians. My intention is not to wage war on the capitalistic system. That's not why I'm reading this. But really to generate conversation and to challenge us a little bit to just ask questions. Not to just live in America and do everything that we've always done without ever raising an eyebrow or asking the questions. So you have to ask yourself this. Maybe this is one question that you go home and ask. What affects our perception of the world more? Capitalism or the kingdom of God? What affects our perception of the world more? Capitalism or the kingdom of God? Or, or what about this? Is capitalism the filter that we use when we spend, when we save, when we steward our money? Or is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the very filter for those things? Is it capitalism or is it Jesus? Verse 21 reminds us that where our treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the truth. How one understands, deals with, spends, saves their money is maybe one of the most telling indicators of their love and their faith in Jesus Christ. Wealth is dangerous because it can confuse what we think our treasure really is. That's why I think capitalism is dangerous, because it lulls us to sleep thinking power and wealth are okay as long as they're used correctly. However, Jesus seems pretty clear in this section that throughout the Scripture and throughout the Scripture that wealth and power are not the ways of the kingdom of God. Stassen later in that book, Stassen Ngushi says this, Disciples do not live simply and give generously in order to be counted worthy of being disciples. 
Instead, because we are disciples of Jesus and we are invested in his eschatological project, it naturally follows that we reorient our lives in every area, including economic life. Being called into the kingdom means we reorient our economic life. I am not anti-American. I am proud to live here. I couldn't give this sermon if I didn't live here. That's not the intention of this morning. The intention is just to raise the question. Let us not be ignorant to the systems and the structures that play out around us. We have to have a biblical worldview. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom, a member of the kingdom of God, that we begin to have a biblical worldview. And we have to operate differently than the world around us. We can't be Christian and do everything else that everybody else is doing. Being a Christian, following Jesus Christ, being in his kingdom means we live a different life. Jesus calls us to this much. Let's move on to uh, being called to a singular focus. Verse 24 says this, Disciples should try as much as possible to serve God more than wealth. That's not what that scripture says. The scripture says this, It is impossible to serve both God and wealth. It doesn't say, hey, just try to serve God a little bit more than serving your wealth. It says it's impossible. You can't do it. You can't have two lords. Either you serve God or you don't. There is no way for it to happen. God demands our singular, undivided focus on him and his kingdom. So more than wealth being dangerous, I think Jesus is once again calling us to a singular focus on him and his kingdom. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes it this way in the book of Philippians. He says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, and then he says it this way in Philippians 3, 8. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. That is a singular focus on Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Paul speaks, I think, what Jesus desires of us. And so do we really count things as rubbish compared to him? And not only do we think it, but then do our lives actually match it? Does the way that we spend our money, does the way that we spend our time actually match that idea Wealth can divide our focus, certainly, but then greed becomes the issue. And after that, it's a lack of generosity, and then it's living into luxury. Then we become prideful. Then we begin to hoard. We live a life of self-indulgence. We begin to feel entitled to things. We begin to oppress others, and it's the sick cycle that begins to play out when our focus becomes divided, when we lose focus on Jesus Christ. And so as a disciple, we're called to have a singular focus on Jesus and to use the gospel as our very filter. It's not just a loose set of requirements, not just some maybe ideas of how we begin to do life a little bit differently. He is saying, no, you cannot serve God and wealth. You have to have a singular focus on me. That's why I think that Bonhoeffer quote that I read in the beginning is powerful. Let's read it again and I'll put it up behind us. The life of a disciple can only be maintained so long as nothing is allowed to come between Christ and ourselves. 
neither the law nor personal piety nor even the world. The disciple always looks only to his master, never to Christ and the law, Christ and religion, Christ and the world. We cannot have a divided focus. Our focus needs to be Jesus Christ and his kingdom and those things alone. My small group and I, we talked about this passage on Wednesday, had a, had a fantastic discussion about some of the stuff. And uh, one of the, the gals in my group, who's a, a great and trusted friend, kind of came up towards the end of our discussion and said, you know, what's frustrating about this, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, she said, what's frustrating about this is I feel like we read these scriptures so much, but then there's really no transformation. We read them and we get all fired up about them, but then we go back to our lives, we, we get back into our cars, walk back into our homes, our apartments, our dorm rooms, whatever it is, and nothing has really changed until maybe we come back six months later and talk about money again, and, and it will probably be the same cycle that plays out. I think the danger in the Sermon on the Mount is we read it dualistically. We read it as these ethical teachings that really only the most spiritual people in the world, the greatest pastors can truly live this out, and everybody else kind of gets a, a, a free pass just to say, well, it's important, but you can't really do it all, so don't really worry about it. It's these high, lofty goals that are actually completely unattainable, and so maybe we shouldn't really worry about it. We'll study them, but it's not going to really transform us. What if we didn't read them that way? What if we read them as admonishments, as encouragements, as teachings that actually drove us to transformation? What if we left this building this morning and actually dealt with our money differently? Viewed our time differently? understood that our kids had become a treasure and it was actually taking our focus away from Jesus? What if we moved out of this building in that way? As a group, we actually talked about what would it look like if, as a group, we knew what each other made? The big elephant in the corner. Nobody likes to talk about what they make. It's actually kind of a sin, a social sin, if you ask somebody, hey, what was on your your W-2 last year? But what if as a group, and this was our group, we said, hey, what if we actually did that? What if we allowed for the community to come in and help us process how we spend our money? If my wife and I said, here are our books, community, help us to discern what we do with this. Because I know for me, we could spend our money differently. I don't live all this stuff out. I'm not speaking from an ivory tower up here. But what if we begin to view money differently and the community actually begin to help inform us and influence us on how we spend our money, how we allocate our time, how we parent our children? It's interesting to begin to think about. I think we need to read Matthew 6, 19 through 24 and begin to identify our unhealthy treasures, rework our perception of wealth, and seek to clarify our focus on Jesus Christ. The truth is, is that only really happens in community. You can't do that by yourself. You need a group of people to come around you and push you and challenge you to do this stuff, just like you need to come into a group of people and push and challenge them to do this stuff. It only happens in community. That's why we talk about groups so much here. If you're not in a group, get in a group. Plain and simple. 
because transformation cannot happen in a vacuum. Begin a discussion this week in your group with your friends, whatever that looks like, about what, what could it truly look like if the community began to inform some of this stuff for me. What if I opened my life to that? That's where I think these conversations best take place. Let's be a people that recognizes the danger of wealth and has a singular focus on Jesus Christ. And if we were all transformed in those two things, Spokane would never be the same. Let's pray, and then Tyler's going to come up, and we're going to end with one more song we'll worship together. Would you pray with me?